Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. for checking out another edition of Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and today we spotlight one of the driest personalities in all of Maine. He can tell you five jokes and you will not get them until about eh, maybe the next podcast. He's kind of like that, and he's sharp as can be. After season one, he was also one of the most requested for season two. We head up to Cornish to meet with Russ Nutting. I say we because joining me on this journey is multi-time Maine NASCAR champ and Beechridge Motor Speedway Pro Series champion David Oliver. Now, Russ had a knack for getting around Oxford Plain Speedway. Not everybody does. It's a hard track to figure out. Is Russ going to give away his secret? Find out in stage number one. Also, are people over-adjusting their cars today? Russ gets into that, as well as the biggest problem with Arundel Speedway, and it had nothing to do with the way the track was run. Not to mention why he settled on the iconic number 111. Now, Open Trailer Podcast is a product of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Thank you so much for your support. For less than $2 a month, you can subscribe to MVRCA and help us preserve the history of racing in Maine. If you want to support specifically this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash opentrailerpodcast. That's patreon.com slash opentrailerpodcast. 100% of the money raised will go directly back into the podcast. With the money raised in just the first few weeks of 2000, 2022, we have enough money to do a run of decals. Now, I was upfront about the Patreon as far as I don't have a lot of things to make it worth your while as far as bonuses or anything like that. So it's mainly just a tip jar. However, we're going to take the tip jar and put it right back into the podcast. And with the order of stickers, everyone who is a current Patreon member or becomes one at patreon.com slash open trailer podcast will get their choice of decal. Matter of fact, you'll have them before everybody else does. So look for a message in your email box coming soon. Again, to become a supporter of Open Trailer Podcast, patreon.com slash open trailer podcast. Let's get to it. Stage number one of Rust's Nutting. Russ Nutting, it's uh, wonderful to have you on the podcast today. 2008 Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame inductee, 2011 New England Hall of Fame inductee, one of the very few people who have been in uh, both classes. I get some help today from Maine State Champion and Pro Series Champion Dave Oliver. Hello. Thanks for uh, joining us here today. So we're all standing in, and one of the things about the Open Trailer podcast is we don't we have a studio, we just seem to never use it. It just seems to be a, a fun time to, you know, come out and visit the racers in their natural habitat. And we are in Russ's shop today in Limerick, where I walked into a very vibrant race shop. What's going on in here today? 
<laughs> oh, kind of quiet today. What do you mean? This, this seems like you have two race cars going on, and one of them is yours. One of them is yours. Car number 69. How old are you right now? 85. 85. And why is that race car here? Because <laughs> you plan on driving it, right? Well, maybe. Uh, your driving career stretches, I believe, six six decades. And and it started, and we'll get to this, uh, in, in pretty grand fashion, something that doesn't happen to a lot of racers. But before you actually got behind the wheel, what was your first experience at a racetrack? Well, I went to watch Oxford all through my grammar school years. Saw a race at Norway Fairgrounds before Oxford was built. Mm. That yeah. got me hooked. Yeah, so what was it about racing that got you hooked? I've always liked cars. I played with street rods a little bit. And uh, and where did you grow up? In Bethel, Maine. Doesn't seem like a hotbed of racing. Uh, had their ski community taken off by then? No, it's not really a hotbed of racing, that's for sure. Yeah, no, no. Um, so, like, so what kind of student were you in school? Oh, probably an A minus, B plus. Depends what subject, right? Yeah. Uh, so, um... What was it about school where, I mean, it seems like you excelled. You did pretty well in it. Uh, what, what drew you into uh, education? Because I hear from a lot of racers, they wanted nothing to do with it. They just wanted to be in the shop. No. I like math. It goes along with it. And math, I think, uh, translates pretty well into, into what you do and what you became. I mean, you're famous for a number of different things, the, not only the driving, but Dave Oliver is, is joining me here today. And Dave, why do you stop by here? Well, what is your original intention for being here? Russ has done my rear end stuff for 20-odd years. Um, so that's the intention is to stop here and pick up my rear end or drop off my rear end. But it turns into two hours of chassis dynamics discussion and history all at the same time. So it works out really good because I get a history lesson and a chassis instructional every time I walk through the door. Russ, when we started uh, Open Trailer Podcast last year, there was a lot of interest in it, which is always great to hear. It benefits Maine Vintage Race Car Association. I would say one of the, definitely one of the top three, the most requested person to have on the podcast was Russ Nutting. Really? Yeah, I think you you're still glued into the current dynamics of racing. Um, up until recently, you were involved with weekly track. That's right. What were you doing? Well, I've done t- uh, Tackett Star Speedway for 21 years. Yeah, and raced Uh-oh. at the same time. When is the last time you raced at Beechridge? I uh, drove part of a heat race. <laughs> So when we say part of a heat race, uh, why was that not a full race? <clears throat> well, we got to the two turn and got turned around and shoved into the wall. Yeah. Uh, do you want that to be your last race, or do you have plans to take this number 69 out again? I haven't really decided. All right. Because I asked you originally, I said, um, you know, what do you, um, what's this race car? And you're like, that's my race car. And Dave pipes in with racers never retire. True. Impossible. Yes. Do you think he'll race again? Um, I don't know if he'll race like competition wise. I mean, I'd like to see him race again just because mm-hmm. I'd like to see him race again. But last time I was up here, he was talking about driving that 
again, the, the quintessential racer that he is, he's always talking about rules and stuff. There's always rules and chassis stuff. And last time I was up here, he was talking about carburetors and headers on this car and making it more competitive with, uh, you know, like the Oxford's strictly street type thing. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about it, and next thing you know, he kind of just says out of his, ah, oh, geez, I'd like to bring it up to Oxford maybe and turn some laps in it just to try it out. And I was like, you know, we can make that happen. Let's go up there this year and turn some laps in it. So, uh, Russ, one of the one of the questions we asked, uh, we talked about earlier this afternoon off the record was... How do you drive Oxford? <laughs> You'll think I ever gave you an answer for No, that. I'm yeah. still waiting three hours later. Uh, because Oxford is just one of those racetracks where, I mean, to me, you look at it, I mean, because you told me it's a racetrack, it's fine. And I'm like, no, it's different than every other racetrack. <laughs> I'm not sure I do anything really special there. Mm. I, I think That's you had a hard question for me. Yeah. I could tell David how to get around Star. He Just exactly that. what to do and where. No, Oxford is not like Star, really. No, not at all. How would you? How would one get around Star Speedway? <clears throat> Little pro tip from Russ Nutting. <laughs> well, in turn one at Star Speedway, you can do almost anything. Turn two is a little loose. Yeah. Especially if you do almost anything. Turn three has got a hook, and it's real easy to drive right by it. And coming off turn four, you're more than likely to be tight. You get those three things all in line, and you're going to go. Right on. If you don't, you're not. <laughs> Do you still get uh, racers asking you advice at the age of, of 85? Yes. How much do you think that, or I mean, do you know, because obviously you're still in the game, you know, tech guy at Star for 21 years. How much of what racers do today, driving in circles, is the same as it was in 1957 when you started? Well, driving may not be that much different. The uh, cast setups are different. They do crazy things today. Do you think they need to do those crazy things? No. Oh, don't get him going on, on bump stops and well, he'll go for 20 minutes. I would like to know because as a layman, as a race fan who has never driven a competitive race, I look at the times from 10, 15 years ago and I look at the times today, I'm like, it's really not that different. You're right. So it doesn't seem like you would have to do all those things. Oh, this is a case where a little bit worked pretty good. A little more work, a little better, mm. and then you'd cross the line. So let's talk about your first race car. Let's go back to that, that first race in 1957. Uh, what was that day like for you, the first time that you uh, got the call to, to, to be a race car driver? <laughs> okay. Well, I got a ride, and we went to the racetrack. I said, this can't be too hard. You put it there, you put it to the floor and you steer. Well, that wasn't the case. No. Oh, we get completely sideways right off quick. And where was this race? Beach Ridge. Okay, so you're racing on the, the, the clay, the Teflon, whatever you want to call it. Back oh, in... the Teflon came with the asphalt. Oh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but in 1957, you're out there and, you, and you're slinging it around. You have been watching races since the 40s. Right. And you're like, this is easy. And you've told everybody that it was going to be easy and you're going to get in the car and go. And what happened? 
Well, we got right completely sideways. I said to myself, self, I, I can't spin this thing out. I look kind of stupid. <laughs> so it was sideways, sideways, sideways. Mm-hmm. I got lapped in the heat race. Ooh. I got hell afterwards because the flag man told me I was almost crashed Jerry Seavey's car. Well, okay. Didn't happen, but almost. Right. You remember that from 1960? I remember that. Yeah, of course. Okay, came semi-feature time. Turned that back to the regular driver, mm-hmm. <coughs> and I watched. Who was that regular driver? That was Hutchie Hutchinson. Mm. Actually, Bob Livy drove the car for, for Donnie Day. Bob Livy lived in Massachusetts then. Hutchie drove it on Wednesdays, and Bob would come up and drive it on Friday, on Saturdays. So you, you didn't have a lot of success with that first heat race, but you guys decide to go back and uh, and rework the car. Uh, we did. Donnie changed cars. The car that Bob Levy drove, he changed it. Took the motor out of this original car. So we got together with a motor, come out of the junkyard, got it freed up so it turn over and got it running. Turned the car into a B-class car, which unlocked the rear end, changed the motor on the slant. Went back, and I won that race. You won your very first feature race. Yes. That is amazing. Dave, how long did it take you to win a race? Uh, not my first one. <laughs> no, no, because uh, when you started, the, the fields were pretty large, too, in, yeah, in the early 90s. Fields. Yeah, yeah, 60, 70 cars were the normal then. Right. Um, I don't know. 10, 12, 15 races. I don't even know, honestly, but not what, like that. What was your first impression of, of Russ uh, when watching him as a, a kid in the stands? Um, super smooth. Um, I only saw him at Oxford very little. My dad was racing a mini stock at Oxford for a couple of years. Um, so I went up a few times to watch dad race and Russ was racing. Um, but dad came over to the grandstands and told me watch that guy because he's like were they racing in the same class no no dad was racing the mini stocks he was racing like a late model type thing but he but russ was one of my dad's favorites when he was a kid going to beachridge when him and my uncles would go to beachridge back in the day russ and the 111 car was one of their favorites you touch on the 111 car and i think when you think russ nutting and when you when you google image him for those who have never heard of russ before you'll see that 111 up there and it was such a radical number uh in years since peewee knight we you know, did that as a tribute at least in our beachridge world to uh to russ nutting but 111 i always want to know why the number came to be how did you end up landing on 111 we painted another one to the 11. That's it. <laughs> that was it. There's no, it has nothing to do with Route 111. Nothing at all. No. The car was 11, but there was already another number 11 out there? I don't, I can't remember if it was 111 in the B class or not. Mm. <clears throat> but you needed. Probably not. So, but you wanted to add the one on it. Oh, yeah, we just needed another number, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so you're able to run it at Beechridge, but uh, the 111 isn't well-received at other racetracks. Oh, it, well, we went to Oxford. They didn't like three-digit numbers, so we had to change it to 17. <laughs> and that's something that, that you know, it's funny uh, hearing that from Russ, and, and that was, what year was that? 50? The 58. 58. What kind, of, what kind of car were you driving at this point? 37 Ford, cool. Yeah. So you had the 17, and I remember the Oxford Opens in the 80s when three-digit numbers were all the rage because if a 48 showed up and it was Robbie Crouch and they had, Dick Lines had like a different 
you know, team car. They just put a one on the side of it. So they were they were good with three digit numbers by then. But going back to the seventeen, going back to the one eleven, how many numbers have you had over the years? Thirty. 30 some people do not race 30 races this guy has had 30 different numbers which one's the the one that's closest to your heart oh maybe 69 maybe 111 because it was the first one Mm. why did you gravitate towards 69 when i built the chevy 2 my mother was 69 and nobody else had that number and i was still fussing about the three digit numbers here and there so were were your parents supportive of your racing? My mother went to Beechridge once to a practice day, and she never would go again. My father was supportive because he watched me at Oxford a lot. And you're from Bethel, yeah. So that would be probably an easier commute, right? Um, so you, you didn't have a was is it your mom was really nervous to watch you race? I think so. Mm. <clears throat> um, and so you win that first race, but how do how do the rest of the early seasons go for you? The first season? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I crashed that first car. That was the end of that. So we built another car. And we took some parts off of the first car. We didn't know exactly where they went. So that was kind of a disaster. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know where they went? <laughs> <laughs> well, they got to be in the wrong place. and oh. Things didn't work right. We got that smartened up over the winter. Actually, that was uh, towards the end of the year anyway. And how big were the, the pits at Beach Ridge back then? How, talk about the community of people that would be in the pits um, during the late 50s and early 60s. Well, no women, no kids, no dogs. No dogs. No dogs. No cats. That's no cats. One. No cats, nothing. No, but some of the camaraderie where um, obviously you're still to this day, 2022, now uh, renowned for your, you know, for your rear ends, for um, for your mechanics. Uh, what At what point do people start to recognize you as, as one of the, the guys to go to? Well, I was always kind of handy at making things, being a machinist and all, and because of make little trinkets and people would like that. Oh, wow, you make me one of these? Well, okay. That's how that started. Who was the first guy that, or first personality that came up to you at Beechridge where you're like, oh, wow, that person recognizes me? Well, I had some lady that didn't like what I did one day to beat me up with a pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> this this isn't an Andy Cap cartoon. I don't even know what I did wrong. <laughs> she beat you with a pocketbook? Oh yeah. She you must did. have been outside of the pits. Oh, this was this was after the race. Yeah. There was no women in the pits, but they'd all come over afterwards and instigate everything. Oh, boy. <laughs> the drivers had everything all squared away. Along come the women. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but was there any any uh, personality, like, say, a Ralph Cusack or uh, a Dick Walstenhume or a uh, Dickie Garrett? Who were some of the guys that you measured your success against in those early days? All the above, really. I looked up to all those guys because they started racing before I did, mm. and I wanted to learn all I could, and you know, then we all became quite friendly. What were your memories of J.B. McConnell? I like J.B. Do you have any cool yeah. J.B. stories? Um, I don't know, or off the top of my head. But. Right. And you were there when the track transitioned over to Calvin Reynolds. What was that transition like with new ownership? Oh, Calvin did a good job with it. Mm. Were people nervous when, when JB turned things over to Calvin? 
I don't think so. Things mm. kind of went along about the same as they had been going along. Mm. And, and how long did you race primarily at Beechridge? Uh, probably till six, 1968, probably, and then I, I didn't race Beechridge much after that. Because there was another racetrack coming on the horizon about 20 miles south where you picked up your first championship and had a lot of success at a place that um, even if uh, this podcast is, is how you're learning racing history in Maine, you've seen it on Dale Jr.'s Lost Speedways. Arundel Speedway is where you found a lot of success. What drew you to that place? Well, it was, it was a new track, and okay, we got to try this. So we mm-hmm. did, and then got to like it. Yeah. And they raced on Friday night. And we had been racing at Dover Speedway in Dover, New Hampshire on Friday night. So, okay, we're going to try a rundle now for a change. And I got a ride there. The car went pretty good, so we kind of hung out there. You know, you mentioned racing in New Hampshire. Dover's just a stone's throw from the state line of Maine. But still, from Limerick, where you've been since, how long have you lived here? Since 1960. Okay, so you're well... Actually, I've lived in Limerick since uh, 56, but... So you're making the commute from Limerick to Dover is basically what I'm saying. What was your trade by this point? What were you doing uh, during the week? Were you doing this? Uh, A little bit. Not as much, though. Hmm. I had a job in Nova for a while. Where in Dover did you work? Well, for Claristat for a year. What is Claristat? I don't... It's... Well, they made uh, resistors. Okay. Resistors and little switches. So that kind of ties in with what you eventually became famous for, uh, you know, making little trinkets and and finding little, um, you know, just designing things and being a machinist. Actually, General Electric, I worked for General Electric in Limerick. General Electric moved out. They moved that operation, which was uh, uh, not transistors, uh, rectifiers we made here. They took that uh, that arm of General Electric to Lynchburg, Virginia. So jobs are pretty scarce. So you had to find one. Did you ever work in the Summersworth uh, General Electric? I did. So Dover seemed to be. So what you would do is you would you would drive to work every day from Limerick to Dover or Summersworth or whatever. Am I right on that for a year? Oh yeah, yeah. And when would they race on Friday or Saturday? Well, I didn't. I didn't work down there. Race season. What would you do during race? It was a temporary job that was for the winter time. And that was a little bit in the race season, but not much. Yeah. And I was too far to travel. I would have got a different job. I worked for, went to South Paris after that and worked for Maine Machine Products. Wow. So you're all over the place, and that's probably where Oxford comes in. But let's stick into uh, to Arundel Speedway. What made Arundel so amazing for you? Well, you get blinded by the moon, and you went one turn, turn three. <laughs> you would get blinded by the moon? Yeah, well, you had a full moon, and it would peek right around the corner of the grandstand. When it was big and full, it was really bright. Did anybody ever complain about this? I don't know. No. <laughs> so Arundel I'm not was... not really complaining about it. I just, right. Just well, I would complain about it. Like, I'm trying to win races, and boom, there's the moon. Celestial well, I interference. I got faster, it goes by in a hurry. Yeah, well, there you go. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> But um, tell me about your, I mean, we, we, talk, we always talk about the first win, but we got that one out of the way for you right away because you won your first race. Um, what was it about Arundel that got you, I don't know, that just got you hooked? You said it was a lot like Dover. Oh, it was just, it was just, it turned out to be fun. 
and I got a good ride. I drove a 22 car for the Hilton Brothers, mm-hmm. and we ran, ran really good down there, won a bunch of races. <clears throat> so what were the deals back then uh, as far as the, the financial split? Would you get any money for racing the car? Would you get to keep the trophy? How does that all work? I keep the trophy. I give it away, whichever you want to do. You could, you could get a ride for 40, 40% of what the car made, which we made some half-decent money back in those days. Mm. How much money per week on a good week are you making? Oh, we made fifty hundred bucks, and that was a lot of money then. Oh yeah, I mean you translate that to now. And Dave, jump in. Um, race. So you would get a ride from somebody, and they would give you forty percent of the winnings at whatever the car made. Right. Unlike today, where if any of us, if I want to go get a ride from somebody, I have to bring money to get in their car. Times have changed. <laughs> when did you start to see that that? that shift from show up you'll get 40 percent to i need 140 percent before you even get in this car that kept creeping in and i think uh grand national had a lot to do with that Hmm. you're talking about in the 70s probably 70s and 80s Hmm. oh we still we still make money in the 70s we was doing oxford opens then Let's talk about those Getty Opens, which was sponsored by, yes, Getty, the gas station, and kind of the precursors to what became the Oxford 250. You told an amazing story about the original Getty Open, where what did open mean? It meant open. <laughs> so <laughs> when we say open, what... what you did, ran, run what you brung. In every sense of the word. In every sense of the word. We had modifieds, we had super modifieds, we had Saturday night beaters, we had everything in between. Now they were racing the same class? The same class, the same day, the same race. And who won a bunch of those races? Well, they went to several different people. You know, the, the very first one there. Went to who? Oh, Gene Bergen won some. The Judkins Pinto, which wasn't even ready for NASCAR yet. NASCAR wouldn't approve it. Yeah. You won some. And you won some, too. I won. That's what we, we were getting at. After we changed the late bottles, hmm. after we ran that, I finished fifth in that open, open mm-hmm. deal <clears throat> one time. And hey, after that, they decided they were going to go just with late models. So we had a race at the end of the year. This was going to be just the late model race. And I had my Chevy 2 then. All I needed some tires. So I'd had some asphalt tires. I sold the Beach Ridge guys earlier in the year. I had to go back and borrow them for this race. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> How long would tires last back in the day? Oh, God, back then and a little before then, you put, put tires on in the spring, take them off in the fall, and hide them in the cellar and wait for next year. Wow. They would last you that long. What, were your t- what was your tire bill for the year? If you want to go way back, it was like maybe $2 a piece for the retread, uh, retread pile tires. <laughs> Dave, how much does one slit cost you these days? Uh, so a two-tire race, $364.83. Oh, <clears throat> Bit of a markup there. So you finished fifth in the first open open. Um, who are you competing against? I say Gene Berg in the Homer Drew. <clears throat> and there was a bunch of names there. And then you eventually uh, do a little bit better and you pick up your first win. What were the crowds like at that point? 
Oh, the crowds are very good. Hmm. Tell me about the first time you got out of a race car and you heard the crowd erupt. I don't know. <laughs> See, to me, that would be one of the reasons for doing it. You know, just the, the adulation, the, the moment that you celebrate, you're in victory lane and it's a big deal. Uh, do you well, do you have any memories like that? Well, that'd be on uh, when you was on the good guy list or the bad guy list. Oh well, I mean <laughs> they were making noise. <laughs> were you they ever on the bad guy list? <laughs> oh, from time to time I got on the bad guy list. But really? What did you do? Oh, not much. I've never heard anything bad about you. <laughs> You're one of the few people that I've never heard uh, a stray word about. Oh, I got on the bad side of Dickie Wilson here one night, down at Rundle. Mm, what happened? We had a little go-around. Fist involved? Well, he thought so. I stayed in the car, kept my helmet on. <laughs> <laughs> Did he give you a kiss afterwards? Not that day. No, but you eventually get the Might Lost... Might the next week. <laughs> yeah, you got the Lost in Hume kiss, which was the... Oh, yeah. That means he's making it up. a badge of honor. Yeah. <laughs> so you're racing against Dickie Wallenstein Hume, and what was it like to win that Getty Open, the first one that you won? Well, that was a little bit emotional. Mm. Who was with you that day? Do you remember? <clears throat> Off a pit girl or whatever. Anybody. Anybody, Anybody? that was it with your family, whether it was oh, your... Well, yeah. Oh, well, Darlene was there because she was doing scoring. Mm. <clears throat> Skip and Gene Plummer were there because they, they helped me in the pit. But what all led up to that race <laughs> made it emotional was that the last race of the year, the year before, was a late model race that I borrowed all the tires for. We had a really, really hot rod. I can't remember which one. I broke I broke the rear end of the transmission or something, so I didn't finish the race. I said, next year, we're going to kill them. So I wanted, I guess it was the rear end that we broke. So I really wanted a quick change of rear end to put in it. I didn't have any money, of course. Darlene says, oh, go to the bank and borrow it. Wow. No, not doing that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Nope, I'm not doing it. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm not doing that. So finally she talked me into it. I bought a quick change of rear end and one set of tires. I can't remember. I think five or 600 bucks at the time. It's a lot of money. It was at the time. So we get to the race, going really, really good. Our new parts. I'm thinking about this all the time. <laughs> I didn't have money to pay it back with, basically. So, okay, now we get going in the race. I'm pussyfooting along. Not going to do anything wrong. And so I'll work my way up to the top five. So I'm passing a lap car. And he decided he wanted to go in a different direction, so he run me off over the one turn. So I didn't lose a lap. I lost all the cars, so I start tail. Wow. So it was okay. How many cars were in the race at this point? 36. What was it? 36. 36. Wow. On that third mile. Full field. Well, 38, whoever you talk to. Um, this is okay. Now we're going to drive it. <laughs> you had to come from the back. How many laps did you have? We were born halfway through, I think. That's fast. So um, were you three-wide at all, or did you have to methodically make oh, your way? Yes. How did you weave through traffic? I was three-wide some, some of the time. That was when the track was a whole lot narrower than what it is today. Mm. 
And we're not talking just a little lip on the back stretch because <coughs> they added that about, what, 10, 15 oh, years well, ago. Oh, you put, the, you put yeah. the right rear off so you can set up to the corner. That's the Ben Ash line line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the way up yeah. there. So oh, I won the race. Yeah. You Next mentioned... Morning I went to the bank. Oh, wow. What that, was that like? I paid that damn loan back. <laughs> Did they know about what happened the previous day? Nope. No? No? Because it seemed like back in the day, racing was, you know, the talk of the town. In a <clears> town. <throat> Would you do it right here in Limerick? <clears throat> the bank? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, just down the street. Yeah. So uh, what was that ride home like? You know, you, uh, you, know you, you celebrate in Victory Lane. You put the car, I, I assume, on the open trailer. Um, yeah. Or you tow it or whatever. Uh, what was the ride like back? Because it isn't that far from Oxford here. Probably had a few beers after the race. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably means yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you hit on in the in describing that race was the fact that Darlene was your score. Now, for those that aren't familiar, uh, Darlene uh, Russ's wife. Talk about before we talk about her as a human being. I don't think the scores because nowadays it's all digital. I don't think the scorers get enough credit for their role in the grand scheme of a race team back in the day. If you could expand on that a little bit and what your wife <laughs> meant to the race team in that in that part. So there's a scorer for each car, and you had to keep track of your car. Every time a car crossed the finish line, <clears throat> you had to keep track of it. Mm. That's, the way, that's the way it was done. So you'd never really have a chance to watch the race? Not really, really. No. And they got good at it, you know. They could look around a little bit. They have to watch the car every single second. Right. And how long did she do that for you? She did that quite a while. Mm. All the time we needed that, uh, Gene Plummer did some scoring too. How many racetracks have you raced at throughout your career? 28. 28. Did she score at every single one of those racetracks? Oh, no, you didn't have to. Some of them had, you know, their own scoring system. So you didn't have to do that flip clock thing. That flip clock, that came in with the open competitions. Because not only Oxford had opens, they had opens all over the place, everywhere, New York, all over. Mm. And they devised that scoring system because there was a lot of cars involved and it was a tough deal to, to do the scoring. Mm. Do you have any, this isn't necessarily a Russ Nutting story, but I started thinking about scoring in Oxford, and you've had some run-ins with Ralph Nason over the years. <laughs> do, you, um, do you remember the 19, was it 76 Oxford 250, where Butch Lindley won, but a lot of people say Ralph Nason won? Yes, I do. Do you, do you have a, a version of that? Uh, Ralph Nason won. Ralph Nason won. That's, it's, it's unanimous. If you it's ask main people, they say that Ralph Nason won that race. Uh, what were your memories of that day? <clears throat> I think I was trying to race that day, but I did, I did wound up not racing for some reason or other. That's the 250. Could be anything. Yeah, it's the 250. Num- yeah. What was the 250 like when it became, I mean, I know it started off as the 200, but they added the 50 laps. When did the prestige of the Oxford 250 really start to come into play? <clears throat> it probably started and got launched a little bit with the 200. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Bears obviously get a lot of credit for bringing that to, uh, to the state of Maine and some of those Getty Opens. Did you ever race on Oxford's half-mile track? Yes, I did. What was that like? That was it. 
Kind of flat. A lot of fun. <laughs> when did they, they change it? What, 65? Was there any talk of that coming, or is that just kind of no, like news? No, that, that you- just kind of happened, and then it was uh, 1961 that happened, and they shortened it, and they paved it, and... We still haven't figured out how to get around Oxford, have we? Are you going to answer this question by the end of the podcast? I've been dancing around it for like 20 minutes. Dave, okay, wait, I I know how to do this. Dave, tell me how you get around Oxford. You don't do anything. Do nothing. Do nothing. Just Don't step on the gas pedal. Don't turn the steering wheel. Ride around the place. Let the car do whatever it wants to do. Don't upset it. Uh, What is your... Dave, what's your best finish at Oxford? No. I thought I you would want to race. I a couple times, a couple pass races. Okay. We talked before this podcast started, and and what is it about Oxford that just makes it such a unique track? Well, I'm not sure it's unique, as unique as people think. I asked you this thinking that I was going to get this just grand answer, and we were going to unlock what the hell is wrong with Oxford as far as getting around and why it's not a normal track. And then here's a guy who has won a number of races there, and he's like, no, nah, it's just you guys overthink it. It's a track you can overthink. This is true. Yeah. You can overdrive. You can overthink. You can overset up, which happens a lot. How consistent is or has your setup been at Oxford over the years from well, car to car? I always thought it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the state of Maine, you know, we talked about Oxford, we talked about Beach Ridge, Arundel. Uh, what are some of your memories of some of the other tracks that you ran in Maine? And well, we tried Unity, and I wasn't all that impressed. Was this, uh, what year was this? Oh, that was back during, because Unity had opened for longer than everybody else. Mm, so probably the early 70s? 70s, 80s. Yeah. So after they had paved it, uh, the guy up at Unity, the guy, Ralph Nason, we've touched on him a little bit, but what were your, some of your, um, did you have any run-ins with Ralph at Unity? <clears throat> no. No. Uh, who were some of the tough competitors up there? Oh, Ralph, of course. Burgess. Oh, oh, who was the guy that owned West Cassett? Wilford Cronk? No. No. That guy. <clears throat> Boss Hogg? Oh, yeah. Dave St. Clair, yes. St. Clair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't think of his name. Yeah, he, he was a top runner up there. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever run Spud? No, never been there. Wow. Do you want to go? No. No? <laughs> that was a very quick answer. Yeah, I don't want to go five You hours. go to Bangor, and then you just you just pass the Chick-fil-A, and then it's nothing. <laughs> Bad enough going to Bangor. I'll say nothing about going yeah. beyond. Did you, uh, did you run uh, Speedway 95? I drove by it once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right by it that is that's rust nutting in a shell in stage number two we get into more rust nutting stories including this one involving the legendary junior johnson i first first met junior over to tom pistones junior had bought the norris wheel deal when norris went out of business and he sold it to tom after a while tom hadn't paid him yet so junior came over to get his money tom owed him 40 grand I found out that day how much a coffee can would hold. Holds 20. (laughs) (laughs) That's next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm Andy Austin. Talk to you next time.